Hello, and welcome to Ipsodixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Eliza Schatzman, an attorney and advocate based in Washington, D.C. We will discuss her article, Untouchable Judges, what I've learned about harassment in the judiciary and what we can do to stop it, which will be published in the UCLA Journal of Gender and the Law. So welcome to the show, Eliza. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you reached out and sent me this paper because it's it's really interesting, really well-written, and also really disturbing because you talk about a lot of really unfortunate events that happen to not only yourself, but other people, uh, mostly women, working for, for judges. I wonder if you could start by just describing a little bit about what happened to you and what led you to, to write this article. Sure. So I served as a law clerk in D.C. Superior Court during the 2019 to 2020 term. D.C. Superior Court is our local trial court here in the District of Columbia. And I selected the clerkship because I aspired to be a homicide AUSA in the D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office. And D.C. AUSAs appear before D.C. Superior Court judges. Unfortunately, beginning pretty early in the clerkship, I began to experience gender discrimination and harassment The judge I clerked for would throw me out of the courtroom, tell me I made him uncomfortable. He just felt more comfortable with my male co-clerk, told me I was aggressive and nasty and a disappointment. The day I passed, I found out that I passed the DC bar. He called me into his inner chambers, got in my face and said, you're bossy. And I know bossy because my wife is bossy. And I was just devastated. I cried myself to sleep at night cried on the walk to work in the morning. I just wanted to be reassigned to a different judge for the remainder of the clerkship, but the D.C. Superior Court did not have an employee dispute resolution plan at the time that would have enabled me to be reassigned. So we eventually transitioned to remote work during the pandemic. Uh, The judge basically ignored me for six weeks before he called me up one day in late April and told me he was ending my clerkship early because I made him uncomfortable and lacked respect for him but he didn't want to get into it. So I reached out to DC Courts HR. They told me there was nothing they could do because DC Courts HR does not regulate judges. They said law clerks and judges have a unique relationship. And they asked me, didn't I know that I was an at-will employee? So I reached out to my law school for support and assistance, found out that this judge had a history of misconduct that some law school officials were aware of at the time I accepted the clerkship. So I drafted a judicial complaint that I intended to file with the D.C. Commission on Judicial Disabilities and Tenure. That's the regulatory body for D.C. judges, but I wanted to wait to file that till I'd secured a new job because I feared the judge would retaliate against me uh, and that he would badmouth me in the D.C. legal community. So about a year later, I had secured my dream job in the D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office as a special assistant U.S. attorney. I was two weeks into training when I got a couple devastating calls that altered the course of my life. I was told the judge had made negative statements about me during my background investigation, that I would not be able to obtain a security clearance, and that my job offer was being revoked. I tried to advocate for myself, but they wouldn't tell me what the judge had said about me. They told me the decision was final. 
couple of days later, they reached out to me to offer me an interview for a different position, but they revoked that offer a couple of days later based on the judge's same negative reference. I was only two years into my legal career and the judge just seemed to have limitless power to trash my reputation and destroy my career. So at that time, I went back to my judicial complaint, added some sections about the negative reference, which I had not yet seen, but suspected was gender-based and retaliatory. I filed a judicial complaint with the DC Commission, hired attorneys, and then in the summer and fall of 2021, participated in the investigation into the now former judge. So what ultimately were the repercussions of all of these events on your career today? So the repercussions are enormous and ongoing. Um, I'm basically blackballed from the DC U.S. Attorney's Office, which is my dream job, so I won't be working there. Um, the DC courts have made it clear they are unwilling to engage with me. I've been trying. I've been working with congressional offices on some sample policy guidance, and they just do not want to engage with me. Um, I mean, the response in the DC legal community has been mixed. People have definitely some have been supportive. Some have been less than supportive, but I will never work at my dream job. And a lot of professional doors have been closed to me, but, you know, other opportunities have opened and I'm kind of, I've recently made the decision to step back from the formal practice of law and pursue advocacy work full time. I'm still trying to figure out what path that'll take, but I'm, I'm excited for the next steps in that respect. Um, But it's done enormous damage to my life and my career and reputation. And there's really nothing the former judge can do to fix that. Was the judge required to do anything by way of correcting the record or making recompense to you or mitigating the harm that he did as a consequence of of resigning from the bench? So the judge was involuntarily retired from the D.C. bench um, based on allegations separate from the way he mistreated his clerks. Um, I had attorneys representing me both before the commission and in my private legal dispute with the former judge. And through that, we were able to reach a settlement agreement Um, in January of 2022. Pursuant to the terms of our settlement agreement, he issued a clarifying statement to the DCUSAO addressing some but not all of his outrageous statements about me. Um, It's unclear if that had any effect, but I likely won't ever work at the DCUSAO. And I consider that really insufficient punishment, insufficient redress, considering the enormous damage he has done to my life. How did you feel about the response of the different institutions involved in this particular incident? You know, the court system, the U.S. Attorney's Office your law school, the bar, et cetera. I felt universally let down by institutions that are really set up to protect misbehaving judges, no matter how much misconduct they commit. I mean, I reached out to my law school first, and then I've circled back with them a couple times. Um, The response has been mixed. I mean, I have some very supportive professors who've been assisting me, but then there are also law school officials who are have been aware of this misconduct for a while. And I don't say that to point the finger at my law school. I had an overall very positive law school experience and I don't blame everyone, but, um, and I also don't think it's the law school's job to necessarily warn prospective clerks, but um, they could have been more supportive. I'm now working productively with them on some potential reforms and I'm looking forward to seeing where that goes. Um, In terms of the DC courts, they have just been, terrible. 
Um, they are, like I said, unwilling to engage with me. Um, I've interacted with them, attempted to interact with them recently. I sent them a copy of my statement for the record and a letter requesting a meeting with the chief judge of the DC Superior Court, who I am told is quite reasonable. And I received this very dismissive message in response, basically telling me I should have used the EDR plan in July of 2021. So I was a former clerk in July of 2021. The EDR plan would not have helped me. The EDR plan is to reassign misbehaving judges. And one of the particularly troubling aspects of that is that he was removed from the bench while we were still negotiating. If I had been engaging in EDR, they would have lost jurisdiction over him. So it was really hollow arguments and ridiculous. Um, The DC courts also have made clear they have no plan for what happens when a judge is retired from the bench or is removed from the bench in terms of law clerks seeking negative or seeking to address negative references or seeking a reference from a different judge going forward. Um, so that's been extremely disappointing. Uh, my, do- my door is always open if the DC courts want to engage in the future. And the DC US Attorney's Office, I mean, that was particularly frustrating and disappointing. I had filed a um, FOIA request seeking a copy of the negative reference in July of 2021. That request was denied in full, um, even though it was a reference about me that led to the revocation of my job offer. We were able to get a copy through private negotiations. And I mean, the negative reference is outrageous and makes false statements. But um, by the time we saw it in October, it was just too late. The damage had been done. Um, I really just think in general, all of these institutions are set up to protect misbehaving judges. And the Commission on Judicial Disabilities and Tenure, which is supposed to regulate D.C. judges, is really just, I mean, they are a rubber stamping function for judges seeking a second 15-year term. And they rarely conduct these misconduct investigations. And to the extent they do, they're, you know, pretty toothless and just trying to check a box to say, yes, we looked at this person's complaints. I was really disappointed by how the commission treated me. And I'm hopeful that, you know, sharing my story and advocating on this issue will lead to some reforms. The D.C. course and the D.C. commission are regulated by Congress and Congress can pass laws to fix the deficiencies. And I'm hoping they will. They're in desperate need of oversight and reform. And uh, what was supposed to happen when you filed a complaint of the kind that you did or what did you understand was supposed to happen or, you know, what did you think would happen versus what, what actually happened? And, and were you surprised by the difference between the two? That's a good question. So the DC commission on judicial disabilities and tenure, they regulate DC judges alone, these are Article One judges, but they are, I would argue, federal judges. So they do not operate under the Judicial Conduct and Disability Act. Um, and I think that they should. Um, so the DC Commission has some rules on its website, but they are very vague and unclear. Um, what happened to me was considered a preliminary investigation. And there is like literally one three-line rule about preliminary investigations in the rules, it basically says the commission will conduct whatever procedures necessary to conduct this investigation. Um, So I was not sure what would happen. I had some preliminary 
chats with um, the commission where they told me they were interested in my complaint for several reasons. They wouldn't tell me what the reasons were at the time I filed it, but I later found out separately that it was because the judge was already under investigation for other misconduct. Um, so I had some conversations with the special counsel who asked me questions for several hours about my complaints, but it was extremely disorganized. Um, there are very few rules and procedures in place for these investigations, and I think that there should be. Unfortunately, the special counsel spent most of the questioning needling me and asking me why I couldn't better adjust to the judge's unique work style of harassing me. Um, I was fortunate to have attorneys representing me who were great and who helped me a lot. Um, but we all found the procedures to be kind of confusing and unclear. So what should happen is that there should be rules and procedures in place, even at the preliminary investigation stage. Um, I think they should mirror the rules under the Federal Judicial Conduct and Disability Act, which really is not a, not a perfect law by any stretch, but it definitely delineates the preliminary investigation steps. And it also makes clear that the chief judge, after reviewing a complaint, has to issue findings of fact, regardless of whether he dismisses it, and that both the complainant and the judge have appeal rights. In D.C., they don't issue findings of fact when they dismiss complaints. Complainants do not have appeal rights. It's really set up to protect these misbehaving judges. What about stories about other people you've heard who've had similar experiences in in the judiciary, especially the federal judiciary, with 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 other judges? Did those inform in any way your sort of understanding of the experiences you were having and how you kind of situated your own experience in kind of a the broader advocacy context that you're pursuing now? Sure. So I first became aware of law clerks complaining about judicial harassment and misconduct in February of 2020 when I saw Olivia Warren's House Judiciary Subcommittee testimony about the late Judge Reinhardt. I definitely felt I was still deep in the um, deep in the harassment space in my own clerkship. I was just feeling deeply mistreated. I didn't know where to go, and I felt empowered by watching Olivia's testimony. Um, so. When this happened to me, I knew pretty early on that I wanted to speak publicly about it. Uh, I mean, the federal judiciary does not have many policies and procedures in place. Federal clerks can either file a formal complaint under the Judicial Conduct and Disability Act, or they can engage in employee dispute resolution or EDR. Um, Not many mistreated clerks have spoken publicly, which is why I think it's so important for me to be sharing my story and raising awareness about this issue, but to the extent they have, they've made clear that um, EDR is deeply flawed. It is not impartial. Um, It is not confidential. It is run by judges in the courthouse where the complainant law clerk and the misbehaving judge work um, and complainants lack basic due process. And then the goal of EDR is basically just to be reassigned to a different judge for the remainder of the clerkship. Financial remedies are not available, even for clerks who are deeply mistreated, fired, harassed till they quit, um, face long-term financial harm. And then the Formal Judicial Conduct and Disability Act offers no remedies for law clerks. It's a process by which, theoretically, misbehaving judges are disciplined, but in reality, they're never disciplined. 
So law clerks are dissuaded from filing complaints because of the reputational harm that's associated with whistleblowing and also fears of retaliation by these judges, which I experienced. So in relation to that, I mean, that's kind of surprising to me. Are you saying that in the D.C. in the D.C. courts in particular, there have been no judges who've been disciplined for this kind of behavior? That's correct. Yes. So the D.C. courts uh, were created in 1970. The D.C. commission was created simultaneously. Since that time, I am not aware of any judges who've been formally disciplined for harassment, discrimination, that type of misconduct. Uh, The commission rarely disciplines these judges for anything. And my misbehaving former supervisor was, I believe, the first instance of a judge even involuntarily retired from the D.C. bench. So... A lot of people have been talking about problems of this kind in the federal judiciary. There's been a lot, you know, distressing number of reports of judges harassing law clerks and and other people. In your paper, you suggest the problem is especially bad in the D.C. courts for structural reasons. I wonder if you could kind of talk about that a little bit more specifically. You've you've alluded to the differences between the federal judiciary writ large and the DC courts specifically, but maybe you could dig a little deeper into exactly why the DC court system is so prone to this kind of lack of accountability. So the D.C. courts are Article I federal courts. They were created by Congress in 1970 at the same time the D.C. Commission on Judicial Disabilities and Tenure was created. Um, At the time, it's possible the intent of creating the D.C. courts was for them to be local courts. And they do, D.C. judges do hear cases on local issues. But in most respects, these are federal judges. They receive federal, the federal equivalent of a salary, federal benefits, D.C. law clerks, same federal salaries, federal benefits. The D.C. courts are regulated by Congress, the House and Senate Oversight Committees. They are funded by the federal budget through the House and Senate Appropriations Committees. And the issue is these judges don't have life tenure. They serve 15-year terms. They're similar to other Article One judges that are considered federal judges, like bankruptcy courts, those folks are not Senate confirmed. They serve 14-year terms, but they are covered under the Judicial Conduct and Disability Act. Court of Federal Claims, those folks are Senate confirmed for 15-year terms. Um, So I could go on and on about other Article I courts. Um, So I think, I mean, I think legislation is really sleeping on these Article I courts where it's unclear whether law clerks are protected by Title VII and the Civil Rights Act or it's unclear whether these judges should be federally regulated or regulated at the local level. So what I'm trying to raise awareness of is the fact that these judges are in D.C., serve 15-year terms, then they're basically reappointed as a mere formality for a second 15-year term, giving them de facto life tenure. They receive all the benefits of being Article I federal judges. They're difficult to discipline. They're difficult to remove. They can only be removed by this toothless D.C. Commission on Judicial Disabilities and Tenure, which refuses to discipline them. And they receive all these benefits, and yet they face none of the consequences. They are not subject to a lot of federal regulations. Like I said, it's unclear whether they're subject to Title VII, because 
if a law clerk were to sue a DC judge under Title VII in his motion to dismiss, he could say, nope, I'm a federal judge. I am immune from suit pursuant to Title VII. If you tried to sue him under Section 1983, well, he might say, that's a state law. You can't sue me. I'm a federal judge. That's the wrong law. So it's very unclear. And I feel like DC law clerks shouldn't have to hire attorneys to figure out whether they're protected under anti-discrimination laws. Um, And in addition to the questionable Title VII, Section 1983 issue, D.C. courts are not covered under the D.C. Human Rights Act. Eleanor Holmes Norton is going to propose a bill that would protect the D.C. courts under the D.C. Human Rights Act. Right now, those judges aren't subject to that either. It's really troubling. They're just evading scrutiny day to day, and they are avoiding accountability for misconduct. I mean, there's this kind of incredible irony that the very court system that's tasked with enforcing these federal anti-discrimination laws is itself both immune to those laws and it seems like almost prone to flouting them. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. Um, I mean, it seems crazy to me that the judges who enforce anti-discrimination laws should not themselves be subject to them. Um, and Initially, when Title VII was passed, it exempted all three branches of government. But since then, both the executive branch and the legislative branch are now subject to and their employees are protected by Title VII. It's literally just the judiciary that does not want to be regulated. Well, so in your paper, you propose some changes that might fix or at least mitigate some of those problems. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about some of those proposals, maybe from the sort of lightest touch change to maybe like your bigger asks as well? Sure. Well, the overall intent of my paper was to argue that the D.C. courts should be covered under the Judiciary Accountability Act. Um, So I should probably back up a little bit and talk about the Judiciary Accountability Act. I realize we haven't talked about that. Um, So there is a bill right now in Congress that would address the outrageous lack of workplace protections for judiciary employees. It's called the Judiciary Accountability Act, or JAA. That's H.R. 4827 in the House, and S. 2553 is the companion Senate bill. And it would do three primary things. The first thing is that it would protect judiciary employees under Title VII. It would give them the ability to sue judges and seek damages. It would also protect federal public defenders. They are also currently and very troublingly exempt from Title VII as some ongoing litigation by uh, Karen Strickland, a former PD in North Carolina, has um, recently exemplified. Um, The second thing the JA would do is create some accountability for judicial misconduct. It would amend Title 28 of the U.S. Code to clarify that judicial misconduct does encompass discrimination and retaliation would create a special counsel to assist with some of these misconduct investigations. Importantly, it would specify that if a judge retires, resigns, or dies, an ongoing misconduct investigation into them will not cease. And it would standardize EDR plans and create some more confidential reporting systems for clerks to use. And the third aspect of the JAA is some data collection requirements that I think are important. It would mandate the judiciary collect and publish data on workplace culture the outcomes of judicial misconduct complaints, and diversity in clerkship hiring. These uh, are all notoriously under-scrutinized areas. 
and the lack of data has really allowed judges to get away with misconduct for a long time. So, I mean, the most important thing is that we passed the JA this year. Can't wait another year for such urgently needed workplace protections for law clerks and public defenders and permanent judiciary employees. Um, And I am arguing my paper that the D.C. courts should be covered under the JA because they are Article I federal courts. Other Article I courts, um, the Court of Federal Claims so far, is covered under the JA. And I submitted a statement for the record at a House Judiciary hearing in March, and I argued that the D.C. court should be covered. So that's probably a pretty big ask, and I know there's already some pushback um, from that and from the D.C. courts on that. Um, In terms of some of the other reforms I'm advocating for, though, um, right now there is a distinction in Title 28 of the U.S. Code between judicial retirement and resignation. Currently, if a judge retires rather than resigns amid a misconduct investigation, he or she can continue to collect their lifetime pension, collecting taxpayer dollars after committing misconduct. I think that distinction should be eliminated such that any judge who steps down amid a misconduct investigation Um, that their lifetime pension will be revoked. I also think that both the Judicial Conduct and Disability Act and these EDR plans need to be removed from the judiciary's chain of command. And what that means is that currently under the JC&D Act, the chief judge of the courthouse or chief judge of the circuit, which is a misbehaving judge's boss, would review the misconduct complaint against him, which leads law clerks to be very skeptical that these Uh, investigations will be impartially um, conducted. And so I think that civil rights investigators should be handling all JC&D Act complaints. And then in terms of EDR, that is handled within the courthouse where the misbehaving judge and law clerk work. It is similarly run by judges. And I think EEO officials in that courthouse should conduct those investigations. Some of them have law degrees. Um, it's not a perfect system because they still have existing relationships with the judges in the courthouse, but I think it's better than judges investigating their judiciary colleagues. So to the extent the D.C. courts specifically have pushed back against some of these more robust employment discrimination protections, what, what kind of arguments have they offered to avoid that additional level of, of regulation? I mean, it seems like a really obvious thing to do. Sure. So I am aware that some folks in the D.C. courts believe that um, law clerks might already be, be protected by Title VII. Um, so some folks might argue that. I think that it's very unclear. And at the very least, the Department of Labor needs to issue some policy guidance or someone needs to issue policy guidance because, as I mentioned a bit earlier, in a motion to dismiss, a judge would just say, I am an Article I federal judge. I am immune from suit. And the Title VII does not specify either way which Article I judges are federal judges and immune from suit. Um, so it's possible some D.C. courts officials might argue that. Uh, but I think the broader issue is that these folks just do not believe that harassment in the D.C. judiciary is a problem. That is a sense I get from my interactions with them. I think it's particularly troubling. Um, I mean, the issue is that the D.C. Commission, which is tasked with investigating judges, is perceived in the D.C. legal community to be pretty toothless. And so no one is filing complaints, um, which 
can lead the D.C. courts to argue, oh, this is not a problem. There aren't even very many complaints. But that's incorrect. Uh, when you hear about a workplace where there aren't many complaints, it's not because like folks aren't committing misconduct. It's because the employees don't feel empowered to complain. They don't feel like anything will be done to investigate their complaints. I mean, the D.C. courts didn't even have an EDR plan until 2021. That was after all the federal courts implemented these EDR plans. So I think they just are burying their heads in the sand. They don't want to be regulated. They don't think it's a problem. They're probably hoping I will go away, but I'm not going to. So, And the fact that they won't engage with me doesn't halt my advocacy in any way. So um, the advocacy work you've already described is, is really impressive. Um, as an advocate and as someone who's had these experiences, what advice would you offer to law students or young lawyers who are contemplating a clerkship, whether in the DC circuit or, or elsewhere, both in relation to kind of identifying whether or not that's a good, safe thing to be doing and what they should do if they find themselves in a situation, unfortunately, similar to your own. Sure. So I'm definitely not out there trying to dissuade all students from clerking. I understand there are benefits to clerking, learn a lot about judicial decision-making. It's a great crash course in trial lawyering if you want to be like an AUSA or a public defender. Um, I think it's about being selective about which judges we're applying to, which judges we're accepting clerkship offers from. Um, Law schools are still giving this really troubling advice that you must accept the first clerkship you are offered. I think it really, you know, is a larger issue of deifying judges in the legal community. Um, I think that's terrible advice and they should stop giving that. If you feel uncomfortable after a clerkship interview, you should turn the clerkship down. Um, So I think it's being selective about the clerkships we apply to. I think it's about instituting some reforms within law schools um, to better identify misbehaving judges and protect law clerks. So some of the things I'm talking about would be an internal judicial misconduct database in the law school where students could report on their negative clerkship experiences. They could also report on their positive experiences. That's good too. But law schools should be keeping track of students' clerkship experiences, and they should be following up after the clerkship to find out how students are doing. Um, I think right now it's about internal data collection obligations, but ultimately it should be about external ones and reporting that data, perhaps to the ABA, perhaps to some other entity as a condition of school's accreditation. Um, So that's what I would recommend to law students considering a clerkship. Just be discerning about where you're applying and those sorts of things. In terms of law clerks experiencing harassment, file a complaint, file an EDR complaint, file a formal judicial complaint, stand up for yourself, confide in folks, keep records, keep track of what's going on. Um, I mean, one of the things I've experienced um, is that, I mean, a paper trail is important. And fortunately, I had, to a certain extent, a paper trail. Um But a lot of mistreated clerks and mistreated employees in other industries just are not able to do that. Um, I know that it is extremely scary, the idea of complaining about a Senate-confirmed superior, about a life-tenured superior, but we really just need a groundswell of complainants speaking up so that the judiciary will take these concerns seriously. Well, Elisa, I really appreciate you coming on 
and talking about your experiences, sharing your excellent paper and offering your observations about how to improve this really unfortunate situation in the federal judiciary. Thanks for having me on the podcast. Ha, 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 ha.